in for another time or two that way I'll know who's coming because eventually I have to go out there and get that going. <laughs> Alright, so he's encouraging us to be diligent to enter our rest and uh, he kind of concludes this section with a uh, observation that is uh, pretty uh, pointed to encourage us to really apply what's being said, 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creation hidden from his sight, and all things are open and laid bare to the eye of him whom we have to be. Yes. Um, the exhortation part of this section started back in 3.7. And in 3.7, think about what you, you see. Um, today, if you hear his voice, and so the emphasis is on hearing the voice of God and the power of God's voice, even the fact that when God spoke and said, they shall not enter my rest, they did not enter his rest. Um, and so he comes back to the idea of God's voice, and here talking about his word, and what's his word like? Yeah. It's a sword. It's uh, living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, it, it's it's uh, very uh, able to cut. The idea of being a two-edged sword means what? Cuts both ways. Yes, there's no blunt side. So it cuts, coming and going, cuts on both sides. Uh, God's word cuts us. You know, it penetrates it convicts. Sometimes it makes us feel guilty. Do you like to be cut? You know, many volunteers for surgery, you know, like that, just some kind of uh, voluntary surgery, uh, you know. No, we generally don't like the pain of that. And sometimes we shrink back from the Word of God because we know that it's cutting and, and powerful and painful. Uh, it, will, it will kind of expose what's in the heart, even, as he says, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, a lot of times, um, you know, we kind of try to mask what's inside of us. Try to kind of clean up the outside and, and leave some corrupt thoughts and intentions. But God's just, God's word just exposes that. Cuts right through to that. And uh, he uses the, uh, the idea in verse 13 of everything being open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The idea of being laid bare is the idea of what they do to a sacrifice. They would bend back the neck and you know cut the neck. That's that's the the light there. You're just being exposed to the knife, so to speak. God's word really exposes us. <laughs> it really, it, it, you know, you start reading the Bible with a sincere heart, and and you see yourself in it. You see your sins. You see your your guilt. You know the things that you've tried to hide even from yourself. You know maybe evil motives. Maybe you know, pride or, or lust or or whatever, you know, you start dealing with the Word of God and pretty soon, you know, God's Word just peels the layers of hardness off of that and that all comes to light. Um, so God's Word is a powerful thing. 
We need it. And we need something that breaks through the pretense and really makes us be real. But it's also painful. And we've got to be prepared for that. Comments and thoughts? It really is a mirror. Like what James talks about when you look into the Lord of God and you... It's like a guy looking in the mirror. Like it really shows you yourself. Yes. That's the right way to say that, too. That's exactly what it does. It shows you yourself. It really, you look there, yourself. <coughs> and, you know, sometimes, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of looking at a physical mirror. <laughs> Usually it's not the most pleasant experience for me. And, uh, you know, sometimes we can feel that same way about spiritual mirror. Other thoughts? I have a question. Sure. Um, it says, it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. Is it dividing the joints from the marrow and the soul from the spirit? Because I thought the soul and spirit were the same thing. I don't know the answer to that for sure. I don't know if he's saying that just penetrates clear to the bone, you know, basically clear to the inside, or if he's saying that it makes fine line distinctions. Uh, I think both of those are possibilities. If I, I'm not convinced that he's in this passage saying there's a difference between soul and spirit, but I do think there is in some passages a difference between soul and spirit. The passage that I would use that might be a little stronger from my perspective on that is 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where he says in 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. Now there are people who would argue that that's not a three-part division, but I think it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are a three-part being. A lot of brethren even would disagree with that. I'm not sure that they've got any good reason to disagree with that. I think we clearly are a three-part being, even if we don't have a passage to support it. Because there are three things that make up a human being, if you analyze it this way. There is the body, that's the material, you know, that's the part that decomposes when you die. There's the soul, in this case, soul can be used for other ways, but the soul meaning the life of the body. Think about an animal. Is a dead animal the same thing as a living animal? No. <laughs> I thought that was easy enough even changing. Um, what's the difference between what 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 does a living animal have that a dead animal doesn't have? Well, you can call it whatever you want to. We'd probably say life or breath, but some passage would say soul. You know, it has the than a life. But now, look at a man compared to an animal. A man has something that an animal doesn't have. Even, even a living animal doesn't have something that a living man has. And that's the spirit. That's the part of him created in the image of God that, that lives forever, that's accountable before God and responsible and all that. So, whether these passages say it or not, I think 1 Thessalonians 5 does, whether they say it or not, it is obvious that we are composed of body, life, and spirit.
The problem sometimes comes that soul is used in various ways in the Bible and translated a bunch of different ways. So sometimes it's using the same word that sometimes translated soul and you didn't know it. Maybe translated life or something like that. But if you look at the original word, it often means, you know, life. I mean, animals have a soul in the original language word. But there are some times when soul means the spirit. Like, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Not talking about the life there, he's talking about the spirit. And the term spirit even is used in more than one way, because, you know, sometimes spirit means like an attitude, and sometimes used for the Holy Spirit, and, you know, sometimes it's, you know, so both of those terms have a pretty broad range of uses. So that makes it a little bit more complicated. You have to kind of define it in its context, but still, we are three part beings. this division make more sense in this because it's difficult to divide to figure out what the yeah. soul is and figure out what the spirit is and to divide them appropriately and yet the word of God does that yes in the same way thoughts and intentions and I'm not so sure about joints and marrow being the same but yeah, and, and you know, there's just some debate about even, you know, the best way to translate that and so forth. I, I'm not competent to uh, decide that, or at least I don't know enough to. Uh, but, but either way, the point is, God's word, God's word cuts, it penetrates, and it exposes. I mean, that, that's the basic point. Obviously, the real point of this passage is not trying to figure out if there is or what the distinction is between soul and spirit. That's not certainly not the main point either. Even though it may be the main point, we may. All right. Uh, other comments and questions on 12 and 13? Um, I have a comment. Um, going back to the mirror thing, um, usually when I look at a physical mirror, of course, hopefully everybody, hey, I'm just alone in this, but I see room for improvement. A lot of room for improvement. And also look at it and think, wow, you know, this is it, you know. And really, I think we can do the same thing with our spiritual mirror. I think we should never be satisfied with what we're looking at. We should always be thinking, how can I improve? How can I, I'm always trying to, we're always trying to improve the way we look, getting new clothes or new makeup or doing your hair different or whatever. We're always trying to improve that way we look. But also in the same same way, to be improving way we look at ourselves spiritually. There's always room to improve. There's always room that we can be better Christians. Good point. So, it doesn't make much sense to look at the mirror and not start working on the improvements. Yeah, absolutely. Other thoughts? <clears throat> Alright, well we go into, you know, really a whole new section starting in 414. This is a, kind of a bizarre chapter break again, I'd say. You have from time to time. It's not bad most of the places in the Bible. We just mentioned the ones that are not quite where we would put them. Um, because we've looked at Jesus' superiority to the angels and to Moses, but now he is the great high priest. And so we're going to see his superiority to the, the high priests of the Old Testament. And, and really, in some senses, this section lasts forever. <laughs> you know, lasts till 1018 in one sense, although... Uh, in another sense, perhaps just to the end of six. Um, 
but, but really a lot of this through, through the middle of chapter 10 deals with the idea of Jesus being high priest. Uh, so, uh, he, he introduces that with 14 to 16, if somebody wants to read that. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay. Um, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus. Now, when the high priest in the Old Testament went into the presence of God on the Day of Atonement, what did he pass through? Yes, and prior to the veil? The holy place. So he passes through the holy place, beyond the veil, into the presence of God. Jesus, by analogy, passed through the heavens up to the real throne of God, where God's presence is. And uh, so he's gone through that process that a high priest goes through. And, um, and, and, and yet, as you think about him, um, you see a high priest who's well qualified to come before God on our behalf. Why would I say that? He's perfect. Because he sacrificed himself for us. He did, but what does the text emphasize about how he's a good high priest for us? He's sympathetic to our weaknesses and our needs. Why is that? Because he he was one of us. Yes. There are really two things in these verses you see necessary for high priest. He needs to have authority in heaven to be able to come to God on our behalf. But he also needs a personal knowledge of our condition. <clears throat> now, no earthly priest could have the first. They weren't able to come before God up in heaven. And no angel could offer the second. They never, you know, experienced being a man. Jesus could do both. You know, he had authority in heaven, and yet he sympathized with, with man. Maybe I should answer this a second. Hello? Hello? Yes. Uh, just a minute, but I uh, do you need something quickly? Sure. Okay, I'm, I'm in a study, but I'll be done in about an hour. Is that good? Okay, all right. I'll call you. Um, so, you know, he, he combines both. He, he, he has authority before God and he sympathizes. And uh, really, I mean, he really understands uh, us. I mean, he fully involved himself in humanity. And uh, so when he is, you know, in heaven at God's throne, you know, on our behalf, then what should that help us feel toward God? That we're well represented. We're well represented. So how do you feel in God's presence? Confident. More confident. Yeah, more confident. 
It's pretty intimidating to think about being in the presence of God. In some ways, it's intimidating even to think about talking to God in prayer. Um, But we can have boldness because Jesus is there. And because he has sacrificed himself for us. We can know that God will help us. We can know that he's merciful, that he cares about us. We can know that he'll help in a timely way. Comments and thoughts on on this section. <coughs> Someone I know once said that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, which you know from a mathematical standpoint doesn't add up, but I think it really hits the nail on the head as far as this passage goes. I agree. I mean, you know, whenever we try to define the nature of Jesus in terms of that, I mean, we're I don't think we can completely do it. We don't have categories that fit. I don't think we completely understand it. But but it's it, it certainly is true that Jesus was an authentic man. I mean, he he went through the temptations just as we do. I mean, he suffered as we do. But he's also authentically God. He's clearly that as well. And so anything we do that diminishes either of those really diminishes from who Jesus is. And you know, if we try to use his humanity to, to, you know, try to take away from his deity, or use his deity to try to take away from his humanity, we're going to make a mistake. That We don't have the right to do that. Even though for us it doesn't fit very well to think about combining deity and humanity. That doesn't seem to work, and yet it did in Jesus. And so we've got to accept both sides of that, even though that's a little beyond what I can really fathom. I mean, some of it doesn't doesn't seem like it exactly fits, but that's the way it was. Comments? Your illustration from a couple of weeks ago when we talked about chapter 2, verse 18, I don't think some of these people were here for that, and it was really helpful to me. I mentioned it to Ted last just you you may you may use it better than I do. I don't know. No, you did a good job. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I remember what you're talking about. I don't remember how exactly how I approached it. I do it different ways. But but essentially, you know, if if uh, you were to take uh, Tasha and I were to start pushing on her, uh, you know, she would she'd probably give way before I really pushed very hard because she's a lot smaller than I am. But if I took Brian and started pushing on him. You know, um, I don't know. I don't know that I could move him. But if I could, it would. He'd certainly feel a lot more strength pushing against him than what Tasha would, because he resists so much longer. The longer you resist the temptation, the more strength of temptation you feel. Somebody who gives in quickly never really feels the full force of temptation, because he'd given in long before the temptation got to that point. Well, Jesus resisted to the utmost. He never gave in. So he's the only one that ever really fully experienced the total force of what temptation can be. So in a sense, Jesus was tempted in a greater sense, in a greater magnitude than what we have been. That was more or less it. Yeah, that was actually better than the first time. <laughs> no, I, liked, I liked it better the first time. <laughs> I listened to it on tape. Uh, well, you know, I mean, uh, some things, it just kind of depends on how you think about it. Uh, but that's that, helpful, because I've never been able to resolve in my mind yeah. 
how the perfect Jesus could understand our temptation, and that brought it much closer to home for me. Yeah, any way you use the illustration, I think that concept is really helpful, and I think it's true. And we do need to see that in Jesus. It does make a difference, even in how we relate to Jesus, when we do know that he has felt what we feel, and more. When we, you know, I mean, I think it's very helpful just when we can see that the Lord, by experience, understands things that we face and feel. There's something about that. I mean, I I believe God could understand something that he didn't experience. But I think for us, it helps us so much to see that he has experienced it in terms of just feeling that sense of connection and identification. What is meant by our confession in verse 14? Uh, Well, I think probably, you know, the idea of our confessing Jesus as Lord and then our holding fast to the implications of that. You know, that means continuing with Jesus, continuing to submit to his lordship and so forth. I think that becomes kind of shorthand for, you know, what we've really committed ourselves to when we confess Jesus as Lord. Good question. May. This this whole section is very parallel to chapter 10, uh, verses 19 to 25. And he uses that same expression in 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. But there are a lot of parallels. I, I don't know what all I want to do with that particularly, uh, but there are. However we want to look at that. There's probably, there's probably something in that, even maybe structurally, but I'm not sure what to do with it. Other comments? Yeah, in, our, in our study at Avon, we were asked to uh, state what we thought was the theme of Hebrews. And, and, and I latched on to the, the idea of holding, holding on or holding fast. You see it over and again, and, and arguably it could be a number of other things as well, but th- that, that seems to be so central. I, I, I think that's, that's a good way to express it. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's several things that go into the theme. There are several aspects. But that's what he's really wanting to do. He wants them to stay the course, to persevere, and not lose their, not not turn aside from or turn away from, and not even to let it drift away. You know, hold it fast and stay with it. I think that's that's a good good summary. Verse 16 seems like that would help with that a lot to keep you from getting discouraged that Jesus, well, I guess like 15 and 16, that Jesus understands and that you can have mercy and grace. And I think that would be very helpful to make you want to keep going. Amen. Definitely. We know we have the resources, the strength, the mercy, the help that we need. Thank God. And it's drawing near with confidence, but not with arrogance. Yes, certainly not arrogance. Um, I think what Jesus does, and what the writer here does for us, is to keep us from feeling just totally intimidated and unable to even approach God. Or, If we really stop and think about the greatness and the righteousness of God, I mean, it could just make it to where, I mean, if we really thought about it, we don't have a very high 
regard for God sometimes. I think we don't meditate on the greatness of God enough. Well, once you really think about that, who are we to even think that we could say a word to God? You know, I mean, we wouldn't. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if I was in some kind of a crowd where where George Bush was, I mean, I wouldn't think that I could, you know, go up to him and expect him to talk to me. You know, I mean, that'd be, that'd be ridiculous. You know, uh, we wouldn't try that. We'd be, we would feel very, just, I mean, that'd be wasting his time. I mean, we wouldn't do that. Um, so, I mean, it would be easy to feel that toward God. I think Jesus being there, Jesus' attitude, his mercy and his grace, it gives us the confidence that we need to be able to actually come and directly speak to the Lord and depend on him without being overwhelmed by our sense of inadequacy and, and just unworthiness. <clears throat> is, there a, is there a contrast being made here to the old covenant approach to God in, in some way? Yes, I think in some ways for sure. And he'll say that in that parallel text in chapter 10 where we have the way made through the veil. We now have access in a way different from before because the veil blocked the way and only the high priest could go in once a year with blood and all of that. So they didn't mean they couldn't pray to God back then. They obviously did that and they did that well. But there was still more of a sense of a barrier, more of a sense of distance. And maybe not as much confidence in, in, in some respect. I mean, I, that's not the word. I think of them, at least, was it, is it documented in the Bible, or is that just custom where they would back in and they would, uh, they had bells on their... I don't know if that's documented, but yeah. I've, I've heard that as well. And but that doesn't, that doesn't instill confidence, you know, somebody who's going in <laughs> confidently... If that, if that were true, <laughs> they were hoping they made it back out alive. Yes. Yes. You definitely have, uh, you know, the barriers taken away. You have, you have more of a sense of closeness with God. In the Old Testament, God is called Father, but not nearly as often, and, and not so personally and close. So I think you definitely have more of the closeness in the New Testament. There, there is a difference. There's an advance on that in the New Testament, for sure. Think about Job. Now, that was early in the Old Testament. But, but the distance Job felt from God. And some of the things he even was crying out for, to me, are answered by Jesus. And, you know... I think we wouldn't feel some of the things he felt, even in his situation, by having the greater point of connection with the Lord to Jesus. Other thoughts? So, you know, every bit of this encourages us to hold fast. Don't throw away this opportunity to come boldly to God's throne. And even in this you see the incentive to persevere 
and not lose hold of this opportunity. This passage dovetails so nicely with our study of prayer that we're doing on Sunday nights. And my biggest problem with it is the confidence to approach the throne. And this definitely helps get my thoughts straight on that. Yes. I think I think that's exactly what this is designed to do. And, and, and thank God it is. Um, and knowing... <laughs> what Jesus has gone through and his identification with us and that he is there for us should really give us much more confidence to approach God. I mean, it's probably good if we wouldn't have it if it weren't for Jesus. I think it's good if we understand where we're at compared to God and then understand that through Jesus we have this boldness. Other thoughts? Yeah, what you just said, I think it's important to remember that you know, if Jesus didn't come, it's not that we would be able to approach without confidence. We just couldn't approach him at all. Yeah, when it's all said and done, that's exactly right. <clears throat> yeah, you're exactly right. All right, look at this next section, which is really intriguing how it's... Uh, put together here, um, you know, a lot of Hebrews really goes through some rather careful, uh, logical argumentation to, to arrive at the points. I mean, some of what Hebrews says, even if it weren't inspired, you can see that it has to be that way. I mean, he very carefully sets forth his case, and uh, this is one of those passages. So, let's look at the whole passage. We'll kind of break it down, but, but I think it all fits together. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And so no one takes the honor for himself, to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became all, to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being destined by God, designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, if you're going to be a high priest, there are some qualifications that are necessary. Like what? Male. Yes, but in this section. <laughs> Appointed on behalf of men. Yes. Um, you you've got to be you've got to be in that office, um, and you have a specific specific role to offer the gifts and sacrifices. But if you're going to be who, who's God who, who's going to be in that? 
Well, in verses 2 and 3, what's the qualification? He also is beset with weakness. Yeah. Why is it important that he be beset with weakness? So he can deal with misguided people. Yes. Have you ever noticed how people who are very strong at something often have little sympathy with those who aren't? We can all be in that way in whatever our strong suit. You know, if you're mechanical, you just don't understand people who don't, can't figure that out. If you're good at directions, it doesn't make any sense why some people are directionally challenged. Why, why can't they read a map? You know, and so forth. If you're athletic, you don't understand somebody who's uncoordinated, and so forth and so on. Um, and, and, and so you tend to be very unsympathetic, rather cold and, and harsh, because, and almost looking down your nose at the person. We need the sympathy of this uh, high priest. Uh, that, that's a part of what was necessary. And he actually offered sacrifices for sins for himself first and then for the people. I mean, he had the weakness that, that he was sacrificing for. He, he sympathized. He shared in the condition of the, of the people he was the high priest of. Uh, and in verse 4, what's the other main qualification for the, for the high priest? Yeah, he doesn't appoint himself. That, you know, you can't just, you know, raise your hand and say, oh, pick me, pick me, or, or even just assert yourself and say, well, I'm going to be high priest. Now, there are a few cases in which that was attempted. Do you remember uh, an attempt of a group to sort of take over the priesthood? Cora. Yes. He didn't understand how, you know, Aaron was priest. I mean, you know, they're holy too, you know. And so he just sort of tried to assert his own right. And that was not a pleasant outcome for Korah and his associates. (laughs) It's interesting that in the days of the New Testament, although theoretically, you know, the, the, the high priest was called by God, you, do you know how the high priesthood was actually assigned in Jesus' day and the apostles' day? Was it by divine call? By the Romans. Yeah, the Romans yeah. appointed them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, so, you know, they, the high priests in Judaism didn't even fulfill this, really, that they were appointed by the Lord. But theoretically, they should have sympathized because of their personal weakness and be appointed by the Lord. That's the kind of the pattern for the high priests in the Old Testament. Comments and questions? Is this... <clears throat> I don't know if Hazedek is mentioning in Psalm 110 verse 4. Is he mentioned anywhere else in the Bible? Yes. Genesis 14 is the historical reference to Melchizedek. Okay. In our class, we did a couple of years, it was like a year and a half ago, we did an overview of every book of the Bible. And a friend of mine, or actually the teacher, he's still a friend of mine, but the teacher brought up a point that uh, 
so he, he liked to bring up arguments like against certain people, and he he would like like to prove why he didn't think they were right, that kind of thing. He brought up an ar argument, something like people think this is Shem, the son of Noah. Do you anything know about that? Mm. Supposedly, some people think this is supposedly Shem renamed or something like that. I don't know if you know anything about it, but it was a weird one. So I like my full out of dream. I don't know if you know anything about it. Don't know a thing about it. But I wouldn't doubt it. There are people who think most anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying? Well, I mean, some of this is what are you saying? What people say about this kind of made a little bit of sense. But so it was just like, where'd you get that from? And just, uh, well, you have to remember that, um, you know, like to get a doctor's degree in theology or anything, you have to come up with some new idea. So there's lots of uh, incentive for theologians to come up with new ideas. I right, anything else through uh, four. So this passage says to be a high priest, you have to sympathize with the ones you're priest of because, you know, of your identification with them, and you have to be appointed by God. So verse 5 <coughs> makes the application now, so also Christ. What does he say about Christ in 5 and 6? He was appointed by God. He quotes from two passages. Where are they? Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Yeah, two key Old Testament texts that show God um, appointing God, installing Jesus in the role of priest. So Jesus fits this. To be a high priest, you have to be uh, called by God. Jesus was called by God. In verses 7 through 10, what's it saying about Jesus? Particularly 7 and 8. He suffered. He prayed. Why would he tell us that? What does that show you about Jesus? knows what it's like to suffer and need to pray. Yes. yes. He sympathizes with us because he has suffered like we have. You know, he prayed with, with prayers and supplication, with loud crying and tears. Loud cryings and tears, prayers and supplications are a part of the human experience. And it's showing that he, sympath he can sympathize because he has been through it. He has you know, suffered in this way. And in verse 8, what do you see about him? He humbled himself to obedience. Yes. So again, you see him in this role of sympathizing with us. He, he has humbled himself and become obedient. Um, and so, <clears throat> he was saved, he was heard, and so he becomes the source of eternal salvation. The saved one becomes the Savior, in verse 9. The one who learned, in verse 8, um, well, rather, let me start over again. The one who learned obedience, 
in verse 8, is the one who becomes the, the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. So the obedient one receives obedience. It's interesting how he connects that. And uh, so he now is the source of salvation for those who obey him. Um, being designated by God this priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So what he's saying is that Jesus fulfilled the characteristics that God set forth. He was appointed by God and he sympathizes because he shares our suffering and our weakness. Comments and thoughts? Did the order of Melchizedek have some special meaning to them? There was some intertestamental speculation about Melchizedek, but I am no scholar on that. I don't know much about that stuff at all. I know there was. There's not a lot about it. There's not much at all about it. And it doesn't, I mean, he didn't do anything in particular special as a high priest, did he? Unusually. Well, he received the, the offering from Abraham. And blessed Abraham. And blessed Abraham. Okay. So that puts him above Abraham. And Abraham's descendants that were in his loins. That's the, that's the point he'll make in chapter 7. No end and no beginning. Yeah, the way the way the record was designed, you only see Melchizedek living as high priest. You never see him come into being. You never see him depart. But he will talk to us a whole lot more about that. This idea of learning obedience from what he suffered is a common pun in Greek. Learned is a mathen and suffered is a pathen. So he amathened by what he apathened. It's <laughs> <laughs> so really uh, mixing uh, languages there. A Greek would you know, roll over in his grave by, by doing that. Now, do you see the structure of this passage? Okay, I think. How so? I said, is there? When you ask that, I think there must be, but I had not seen it. Well, look for it. For every high priest taken from a man is appointed. And then at the end we have him being appointed a high priest. Okay. That's, you have kind of the, the office of high priest in verse 1 and verse 10. The office of high priest designated by God. sort of talking about the same thing. Yes, in fact, 2 and 3 and 7 to 8 or 9 uh, are talking about his uh, ability to identify with weakness and suffering. And then 4, 5, and 6 is dealing with appointment. Yes. So we, it, we go from the, the office of the high priest to the, the sympathy because of personal weakness and the appointment of the high priest. And then with Jesus, he, we deal with the appointment and then 
you know, his sympathy because of his sufferings, and then with his his being high priest. So you've got the the high priest office, the sympathy, the appointment, the appointment, the sympathy, the high priest office. What do you think? Does that make sense? But the, the bottom line is, Jesus is fully qualified as high priest. You know, he's he's fulfilled the conditions to assume that role. Comments and questions through verse 10? Okay. 11 to 14. much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk, and not solid food. For everyone who takes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Alright, the writer of Hebrews really wanted to be able to Explain things about Melchizedek. But he doesn't at this, at this point. Why not? That's for dull of hearing. Yeah, what does that mean? They're dull of hearing. We need hearing aids. Fucking <laughs> hard to Yes. What's their problem? They're immature. Yeah, they're immature. And therefore, they're inattentive, they're listless, um, they, they, they don't take advantage of the teaching that's available because they're not listening well. Um, they're kind of mentally listless. So he says, you know, you should have been teachers by this time. But what do they need? What are they needing? Tutoring. Yeah. The <laughs> they need some remedial work. You know, they they need someone to teach them the elementary principles of the oracles of God. The, the milk and not the meat. It's interesting to see the contrast between uh, people. I mean, if they had been where they should have been, they would have been dieting on deeper more profound, more serious truths. But because they had their growth stunted, they were still being bottle-fed. What does that say for us? The goal is not to remain bottle-fed. That's exactly right. We need to challenge ourselves to grow and to deepen. it's, It's right for a baby to drink milk exclusively for a little while. You know, we defied the doctors and started giving Laura some cereal when she was like two months old before she'd go to bed at night so she'd sleep all night. But, uh, you know, at first, it's, we didn't feed her steaks. You know, haven't done much of that since then either. But, uh, <laughs> so you expect a small child to be bottle fed, but, you know, if you take somebody you know, who's an adolescent or an adult and they still are taking the bottle, something's wrong. 
their their development has been has been stunted. Uh, they got some kind of mental disability or whatever. So, you know, it, it should be that we move from the milk into the meat. That we come to desire, we hunger for deeper and and, and more serious spiritual principles. Uh, I don't know. Physically, would you like to go back to just drinking a bottle all the time? No. <laughs> We've known the joys of eating real food. And they need to experience the joys of deeper study, of, of maturing in Christ to where they want not just the milk but the meat. Someone has said that this uh, gives the church the right to be something other than an infant school. You know, it, it's appropriate for us not to only to teach first principles, but to teach some more mature principles and to challenge ourselves to grow like that. <clears throat> you know, I remember several years ago, I may have used this illustration, probably have, but uh, a guy who was in this church was telling me that, you know, they'd studied like Acts twice in the last year or two, and they are ready for a new Bible class. Well, let's study Acts! Now, why would they want to study Acts so much? Well, Probably because they didn't understand it. I think Acts is pretty difficult. But but they thought they knew it, so they wanted to study it. That'll make them feel good. We, we'll, we'll remind ourselves of what we know. We won't challenge ourselves. We'll feel like we really know the Bible. As opposed to pressing on and pursuing something meatier. Would you want meatier and more mature classes and sermons in church? What about the non-Christians? And what about the weak members? And what about the spiritual people whose spiritual growth has been stunted? Do you suppose they'll they'll like that? Do you suppose they'll catch on? Or will it be a turnoff to them? Probably a turnoff. Yeah. I've heard that about some preachers that <clears throat> they, they just talked over the head of their audience. So what do we do about that? Well, let's dumb it down. Let's make sure that no child's left behind, you know. No visitor is uh, left wondering. You know, make sure we get just the basic things. Um, I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think it needs to be all meat. We need to be providing a balanced diet and the new converts may need some special work to get them ready for the meat. But if we always are seeking only the most familiar truths and just repeating them over and over again, we become self-righteous and, and our growth is stunted. Because we don't have a broad view. We don't ever de- deepen our, our, our diet to include the meat. But I mean, if you present the meat, that can also make someone more curious and more interested in, and motivated in to learn enough to be able to understand it. Yes. If it's present, I guess part of it is if it's presented in a way that makes it at least seem that it's accessible, you know. Yes, I agree. Watching someone do calculus is really cool, but you know, you've got to understand. You got to go through multiplication first. Yes, I agree with that. Obviously, you do, you have to go through the steps. I mean, there's some things you don't understand until you understand something before that. So, you know, we're going to have to press on a step at a time. What do you think about this statement? 
that I, I always heard growing up, that everything in the Bible is easy to understand. And you need to make sure that if you're teaching or preaching, everything's done on a fourth grade level or whatever. Because, because I mean, if, if, it, if it's complicated, then it must not be from God. You know, God's stuff is simple, it's easy to understand. He doesn't expect us to, to have to, you know, dig deeply. Is that true? Somewhere in First or Second Peter, it suggests that's not true. Yes, that's right. Second Peter 3 says that Paul wrote some things that were hard to understand. It's not true that everything in the Bible is just really easy, simple kinds of stuff. But I've heard people say that. I've heard people say, if you preach and a fourth grader can't understand it, then you missed it. Well, I mean, I'm not saying we ought to try to strive for some complex vocabulary or something like that. That's not the point. We ought to teach both first principles and we also ought to be teaching more mature, developed teaching. We need well, There's room for both. But but the problem is if, if if we all we do is we just feed on the milk and we just give others the milk, they never mature into a healthy, strong, vigorous person. So the writer here is complaining that they still just need milk. They they don't get the meat yet. They haven't challenged themselves. They stay back here in the book of Acts or whatever, you know, over and over and over again. We even know this one. But they never really push themselves to deepen. Comments on that thought about the milk and the meat. What's another thing that shows you that they were not spiritually mature? They hadn't practiced. Okay. Yes, they didn't have discernment. Uh, he says in verse 14, the solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. But these immature Christians, they didn't have the good judgment, the good discernment to be able to distinguish between good and evil. You ever talk to somebody about something that you were concerned about and they're like, well, there's nothing in the Bible against it. Well, maybe they're right. You know, I mean, anything in the Bible against seeing, you know, R-rated movies? I understand there's something more than the rating involved. But, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't do that. I mean, is there anything in the Bible that, that says, you know, I don't know. Um, that That certain things that we see as as dangerous and risky, you know, are wrong. No, there's a lot of things that's not like that. You know, it's not that you'll find a passage in the Bible that just says, okay, thou shalt not blank. But mature people spiritually have deeper discernment and they can see this is not going to be helpful to me. This is not going to be a good course for me. What, can you prove it's wrong? No, I'm not even trying to prove it's wrong. I just have the discernment to realize this is unwise. This is going to involve me with the wrong kind of people. It's going to distract me or whatever. Spiritually mature people have discernment to see between what's good and better.
And, and so not everything is going to come down to, I can just point out the text. Some of it's going to be a deeper understanding of spiritual principles that will lead me perhaps to not involve myself in certain things that other people don't see why I wouldn't, because I see with my discernment that's not going to land me in a good place. Gambling. Yes, that's right. I think that would be a good example. You know, can you prove in the Bible gambling is wrong? I don't think so. Would a wise, mature, spiritual Christian start playing the slot machines? There's so many evils that come from that. So many. So destructive. And and, and it really can be very addictive. We see people getting caught up in that. You know? Even though, I mean, you know, you can't say, well, thou shalt not gamble. You can say, this is not helpful. This, this is not going to put me in the right places with the right people doing the right kinds of things. Often you see young Christians not do, making very good choices about those things because they don't have much experience to develop the discernment. Yeah. I was just thinking about the principles that are available to us in the Bible. The principles of stewardship would lead you to believe that gambling is not the right thing to do. The principles of purity would lead you to believe that going to an R-rated movie is not the right thing to do. But it takes discernment to know that. Exactly. Exactly. With greater maturity, we make, hopefully, better and better choices. There are a lot of things that that I see even now uh, that I didn't see a few years ago. (laughs) I've learned a lot since, since my kids were, you know, a few years younger. But I... I didn't see some things and what they would have done, what, what they did do. You know, to me, that's not a big deal. And now, looking back at them and others, I'm like, oh, that wasn't the smartest thing. <laughs> you know, now I can see that, no, this goes with this, and this happens to this, and, you know, so forth. I mean, maturity, if, if, we, if we develop a really God consciousness, we really mature spiritually, then we start seeing some things and realizing, I, I, I would cite this example as just a, uh, you know, I'm not trying to make a particular point about this, but, you know, 15 years ago, I would have, if, you know, Kyle had really cared about things like this, I probably enrolled him in quite a few sports activities. He was not too interested, and we were in Brazil during elementary school. So by the time he came back, he missed out. You know, he's like in fifth grade and even like basketball. You know, he wasn't good enough. You know, he tried. But he missed out the three years where you really have to work on that. And, you know, in southern Indiana anyway. To, you know, you're already, you know, trying to groom people for the NBA. So, uh, you know, that... But but at the time, I would have, you know, if he'd have wanted, I would have him into, you know, softball or baseball, I guess, Whatever you call it. it's not baseball at that age. Whatever it is, you know, at 12 years old or whatever. Uh, I guess it is baseball. Uh, some kind of league. And, uh, and we would have done some other things. You know, what he wanted. We thought, yeah, that's cool. You know, get him. And it's not bad. But you know, at 49, I see the dangers that I never saw back then. Thankfully, he just didn't care much. He didn't want to do much of that. But I see the people who, you know, I see the kids you know, who get all involved in those things and it just sucks their time down. I mean, 
I don't think he'd mind me using this as an example. Uh, but I had never, I would never have thought about this a few years ago. And David Smelson wrote on his Plinas blog, I think yesterday and the day before, or whatever, about the decision he's made not to run cross country. And he had a cool blog because did you see it? And he just wrote, you know, point by point the reasons why, and you know that by by, by not doing cross country. You know, he'd be able to spend the night at the woods at Singings and uh, <laughs> be able to do various things spiritually. And, you know, he talked about some other conscience issues for him. Some involvement with some people and situations that were awkward. That, you know, he mentioned that, you know, uh, sometimes they'd want him to use his shirt as a marker. And that he never did take it off, but it was tempting to him. And he was avoiding those temptations. And, you know, just some things that, that was cool. But... When Kyle ran cross country, I hadn't really thought about too much of those things, you know. And it's not that it's wrong to run cross country or, or anything like that, but but I do see some things differently. The longer I go, the more I see the effect of some things, and and the the more mature, hopefully, I'm becoming spiritually. Some things that seem perfectly okay to me, and now I realize <laughs> I don't think that's very wise. That, that's what should be happening to us. We ought to be developing more of, a, of an insight into, into spiritual principles, uh, have spiritual wisdom. But you know how it is. These people who are still drinking milk and who are still just babies, they never see that. You know, they're like, well, you can't prove to me you can't do that. <laughs> you know, oh, why would anybody care about that? Well, you know, and you're not really probably going to be able to help them even have a clue as to where you're coming from. Because they don't really have that, that wisdom. And, and, you know, I'm sure that, that I'll look back, you know, a few years from now and think, wow, there were things that I even did. There are plenty of things that I've done in my own life. That looking back, it's like, you know, I wish I hadn't done it that way. At the time, it seemed fine. I just wasn't mature enough. I wasn't thinking spiritually enough to understand the effect of those things. So I think that's definitely a, a dividing line. I think as we mature, that's so much better discernment. We should have. If we never mature, what a, what a waste. So you've got the contrast between the milk and the meat. You've got the contrast with the babies versus the mature people of discernment. You've got another contrast in this section. What is it? It's really the first one he mentions. Teachers and students? Yeah. Your, your teachers versus dull of hearing. You know, they're just really slow to listen when they ought to be teachers. That's something that ought to happen with maturity. We, it ought not to be that we remain spectators all our lives. You know, applauding those who are on the front line. We ought to come to be teachers ourselves. I'm not saying that everybody ought to get up in front of a Bible class at church or get up and preach a sermon. I certainly don't think the uh, ladies ought to in uh, male classes or whatever. Uh, there's, there's lots of ways of teaching people without being up in front of a class. Um, but, but it ought to be that we are growing to the point where we can teach others. And we do. Maybe it's people we're around at work or in our neighborhood or whatever. Um, you know, maybe it's older women teaching the younger women, you know, and so forth and so on. But it ought to be 
that we come to be a teacher. So, but, but what the writer here sees is, you're not there. And so, I can't even talk to you about Melchizedek. Because you're too slow, and you, know, you wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't pay attention long enough to, to get it. I mean, there are a lot of things in the Bible that are not exciting on the surface. I mean, to get to the exciting part, you have to go through a lot of things that require some mental concentration. And you have to care enough that you're willing to study through those things. There's been plenty of things I've studied that were boring to me at first. But the more I kept pursuing them, the more it's like, wow, that's really cool. Now, how am I going to show that somebody else where they're going to find that exciting? Well, they probably won't if they're dull of hearing. And, 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 you know, so often we want to try to figure out how can we keep this exciting for carnally-minded people. Well, I think we'll never teach the meat to carnally-minded people in an exciting way. They won't be excited by it. It won't mean much to them. I think we need to have some milk in, in, in what we provide to others. Uh, but I think we also need to have some meat. And it's just going to test people. And some people are just going to say, that was boring. I didn't get that. I don't care about all that priesthood stuff and sacrifices and, you know, all those feasts. I don't want to learn about that. You know? That, that just that seems dull. Well, really, it's their, them that's dull. So I, I think one of my appeals would be, let's not avoid mature meat at times in our teaching, just because we know some people are going to not really find it stimulating. I talked too much on that one, but comments and questions? You can have some of both from just one lesson. Absolutely. Definitely. And should. Makes me think of the Proverbs and how you have the father who's older and experienced teaching his son. And, you know, you recognize that... that uh, the difference, the disparity, that just there's going to be some of that regardless. And so you expect the one who's younger to, you know, to be very open to the fact that this person has a lot more experience and they and shares that wisdom with the hopes that some of it's going to stick and stick immediately. Um, and and you see what a, what a shame it is when you have older <clears throat> ones in the faith that don't show that wisdom, that have never grown. That's just, that's so sad. It should not be that way. You know, it ought to be that they are. That's what he's saying here, is, guys, you should have grown. It's been, it's time. <laughs> you ought to be maturing. And uh, it, it's just the tragedy of, of what we've all seen with, like, uh, you know, children that are born with some sort of, handicapped and their, their development mentally and physically is, is, is hindered and, and you know they, they seem to be you know six months old but they're, they're really 20 or 30 or whatever ha, boy that's so sad you know you just feel for the parents and, and you know it's just it's terrible it's such a pathetic situation we got a ton of pathetic situations spiritually like that and they don't even see that but what's worse is children who are neglected, that who could grow normally if they're given the attention that they need in the progression, you know, with the kind of caretaking that they could have. And I think um, we need to watch for people who are stunted 
and who need more attention than others. Yeah, there's various reasons for being stunned, you know, and sometimes, I mean, if we haven't given good feeding and guidance when the children are younger, that may create that situation. Sometimes it's just because they don't want to grow. You know, you've got a little bit of both situations. I've been making a lot of phone calls today, so I'm going to return. Tony does what I call. Well, you hate to do that, but every once in a while it's something that you know you probably need to... Oh, you probably relish it when it's me. Actually, you don't call me too often. <laughs> she likes her better than me, right? Yeah. <laughs> I figured that out already, so you're not really revealing anything. So, so Gary, if you if you know somebody, let's let's say there's somebody that for 15 years they've they've not, you know, they've just not grown spiritually. They struggle with the same things now that they did 15 years ago. I mean, the same. You know, spiritual input kinds of things. What do you say to them? Do, do you do you do you try to you know take the shock uh, method approach to say you know to say exactly that kind of thing? Look, you you don't seem to have grown any in 15 years. Or well, you know, what do you do with the person? <laughs> well, I mean, the writer of Hebrews was doing that here. So I, I don't want to, I mean, I think sometimes that may be exactly what we need to do. I think we're too, uh, there's a balance, and, and, and not everybody's in the same boat, I realize that, but sometimes we're just too concerned to coddle those who don't want to grow. Well, and if you spend all your time then trying to help that person who for 15 years just hasn't moved, you know, hardly an inch... And then, you know, as Anita said, you've got somebody else over here maybe who's being neglected because you're still trying to get that person to move off a of dead center. You know, at some point, it sounds harsh, but at some point you just kind of, do, do you get to the point where you, you move on? I do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It may, not be, it may not be your role to fix that person. It may be somebody else's role to you know, water or, or whatever, add some fertilizer and move on. So. And there's always going to be weaker members and stronger members, but you don't want the weaker members to always be the same people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You, it, it, we, we would not want, say, the church to become just a... Um, you know, kind of an elitist club of we want only spiritually mature people here. That would, I think, would be bad for the spiritually mature people even. Um, it would be tidier, and it would be easier in the short run. You know, because don't those babies really make a lot of mess? Uh, but, you know, that would be a church that wasn't bringing people to the Lord, that wasn't dealing with people who had complicated backgrounds and things like that. And I don't think that'd be good. I mean, that would be Proverbs 14.4. You know, whatever it says. Yeah. We're no oxen are the top of the queen. Yeah. Did you get it? Did you say it? I thought it was, yeah. But much increase in Yeah. Well, no oxen are the manger's queen, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. So it's nice to have oxen even though they mess up the manger. Um, <laughs> but the purpose of the manger was, you know, keep oxen. You know, it wasn't just to be a showpiece. 
so the church is kind of a hospital for those who are ailing, and, and you know, that's the point of it. Um, but, you know, I, you've got to look at everything we can see in the dealings of Jesus and Paul and even the prophets and so forth. How do you deal with things? And I don't think that Paul or Jesus would advise us to just um, cater to, you know, people who have been Christians for a long time, who are still spiritual babies, and who still need us to, you know, give them a bottle and diaper them. I don't think that helps them. I think they need to be pushed and challenged to grow. And what I fear is sometimes that in churches we can do so much of that sort of thing that A, the babies get to depending on it, and B, we miss our calling because we're spending all the time, I'm thinking about, you know, people who, you know, just always need lots of attention not spiritual attention. I'm not talking about people who want you to sit down and pray with them and study with them and encourage them and things like that. But they want to make sure you're always there, you know, playing with their, their babies and their grandbabies and, you know, there every time they stub their toe to make sure you've, you know, bandaged it and whatever, you know, and, and are just always, you know, giving them that. I don't know that that's helpful. I mean, if, if that's all they want. We're missing the the work we've got to do. There's obviously a balance, and I mean, Jude 22 and 23, First Thessalonians 5, talk about the distinction between distinctions between people, and and we've got to be sensitive to that. And not everybody is in the same category, and we can't expect everybody to grow in exactly the same way. Not everybody has the same background. Not everybody has the same advantages. But the writer here realized these guys are stuck in baby mode, and they can't be that one. And he just rebukes them. And, and it's just not right. And he said, we need to push on. I don't, I don't know that I, I mean, I, I don't know that I have a lot of practical suggestions. It, probably helpful in a church that has elders. Um, because that gives a little bit more authority of behind the push. Because the message is, you're, you're not saved where you're at right now, you you may be. Uh, I mean, is that fair? I mean, you may be you may be um, filling the pew, but are you where God wants you to be? I think He's warning them. I don't think He's saying they aren't saved yet. Uh, you know, in this, I mean, some of what He says, even say in you know, 6.3, this we will do if God permits. And 6.9, beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So I think he's saying, I don't think he's quite saying you're cut off yet, but I think he's giving a really strong push, you'd better grow up. You do see in, in a lot of things in the Bible, in the New Testament, not just giving up without giving a real push. I mean, even, I, I'm impressed by the fact that the prodigal son's father went out to entreat the elder brother. You know, I mean, he didn't even give up on him. 
and Jesus, while he was strong with the Pharisees, he talked straightly to the Pharisees. I mean, he was giving them the blessing of the warnings that he gave them. Sometimes we just become disgusted with people. I just write them off. I think it would be better to exhort them and admonish them and implore them and then write them off if need be. I mean, we may have to write some people off. I think the Bible indicates that in various ways. Um, I don't know. I probably didn't too much talking. That reminds me of reading this about the, the infant and the mature made me think of the part earlier in the chapter where we're talking about the high priest who can deal gently because he know he's been in his had his own weak weaknesses. And so when you become more mature, you can't lose I don't think you can lose that awareness of what it was like to be an infant and not really understand. Not in the sense that, oh right. well you're not going to you know, here's a here's a tough stake, that's all you get, but to understand what it was like and think about ways to make that help that growth and transition and being patient. I agree that sometimes there's a point where it's a willful rejection of the word and Well and we ought to make the distinction. There's a difference between 20-year-old babies and six-month-year-old babies. You know, babies should be babies. And they're going to be a pain if you look at it that way. (laughs) Or they're a blessing that you love if you look at it that way. But, I mean, they take a lot of care and nurture and attention. They have a lot of crises. And and they're dependent. And so uh, it's absolutely right for us to be patient and long-suffering and really work with babies. You know, but there comes a time when we need to challenge the 20-year-old babies that being a baby now is not, not cool. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else on all that? Dude, it's not cool to be a baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably a good stopping point then for tonight. I won't be here next week, but I think I'll be here the next week. I had made a note that it, that maybe at verse 11, that is there perhaps an interruption of thought that he's going to then pick up later at the end of 6? Yes, yes. Is, yes. is that fair looking at this section kind of that way? Yes, I think so. Yeah, he will Because he's going to come back and tell us about Melchizedek in yeah. chapter 7. So he makes reference to Melchizedek again at the very end of 6 to introduce him again. So it's funny, right. as you mentioned Melchizedek, it's like, man, I'd like to tell you more, but... Yes. And we go off into that exhortation and yeah. then move back to Melchizedek. Okay. Thanks. I agree. All right. Well, very good, guys. That was very good.